Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and my co-host is Aaron Miller. Uh, this is episode 40 of the Beyond Devices podcast, so we're grateful to those of you who have been with us for, for some or all of that 40 episodes. Um, we were kidding just before we started recording last week that it's interesting. Our episode 40 lands the same week as the 40th anniversary of the founding of Apple, which was uh, referred to in a, in a video at the Apple event last week. But uh, that's not a subject we're going to be talking about today. Perhaps next week we might talk a little bit about that. I know I've been contacted by a couple of reporters asking uh, for comments for stories they're writing about Apple at 40 years old and I'm sure we'll see lots of those stories coming out over the next few days. Um, it's also worth noting briefly up front that um, both the Beyond Devices blog and podcast are now available through Apple News. So if you have an iOS 9 device, uh, whether an iPhone or an iPad, um, you can now add the Beyond Devices channel on Apple News and you will get both the blog posts and uh, the podcast. In both cases, it's just a handful of entries for each of those, but every new uh, blog post and every new podcast episode will go in there as well. So that's another way to consume those two things. Uh, we'll kick off today with our news roundup, as usual, uh, and we'll have three topics for you. One is about uh, music news, so titles, uh, first anniversary and some of the numbers they put out, the launch of SoundCloud Go, and we may touch briefly on uh, some statistics that were released recently by the uh, Recording Industry Association of America as well. Uh, the second topic will be uh, the conclusion of the Af Apple FBI case in San Bernardino uh, and the implications of that. And then the third news roundup topic will be um, the uh, finalization of the offer by Foxconn for Sharp and what that might mean for those companies and for others. Uh, our question of the week, so our major topic today, will be uh, talking about corporate social responsibility and we specifically asking what other companies can learn from uh, Apple and Google's CSR initiatives. Uh, and then our final topic today will be a discussion of some of the announcements made at this morning's uh, Build keynote. This was the day one keynote on Wednesday uh, in which Microsoft covered Windows 10, HoloLens, and a lot of stuff about uh, conversations as a service and, and bots as a, an important area of development for Microsoft. So that will be our final topic, and then we'll we'll wrap up with our weekly pick in which I'll have a, a television show recommendation for you. So let's kick off with our news roundup, uh, starting with that music news. Um, if you didn't see the news, this is the one-year anniversary of the launch of Tidal, uh, which is this premium music subscription service owned by, I think at this point, 20 major recording artists, uh, many of them from the kind of rap and R&B side of things. Um, and they announced that they have 3 million subscribers at this point, of which roughly, uh, I think, 1.35 million were for their premium tier, which is high fidelity streaming at $20 a month. Um, so that was the first piece of news. And the second piece of news was uh, SoundCloud uh, announced its subscription streaming service, um, and uh, that's nine ninety nine a month unless you're on an Apple device, in which case it's $13 a month to cover the 30% cut. Um, and this incorporates uh, all the content that they've always had on SoundCloud plus the standard sort of uh, premium music that you'd get through other platforms as well. So uh, interesting changes there. So Aaron, over to you first of all for your thoughts on some of these things. I was totally surprised by the title announcement of the numbers. I've been pessimistic about title from the start. Um, in fact, I wonder how much Life of Pablo and its launch had to do with people signing up for Tidal. Um, so that because, was the Kanye West album that was only available on Tidal. Right, and it makes me wonder, you know, how many people decided to finally give Tidal a shot because that is a huge amount of star power. 
But even Kanye seems to have softened a little bit because I think he just released a single from the album right. on iTunes, mm-hmm. even though he said he was going to only have it exclusively on, on the title platform and never on iTunes. So right. yeah. I don't know. He's not exactly the kind of person you set your watch against. So <laughs> in terms of reliability, so it'll be, you know, I, I don't know. I guess I'm surprised by that. The, the SoundCloud one, I, I get why they're doing it. I have a hard time imagining the market for the people that pay for SoundCloud only because I don't think I'm at all in that market. Right. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. It's not a service that I've used a ton. We use it for our podcast actually as it happens, but and I think I know a lot of other people that use it that way, but I think the core audience on SoundCloud is people finding you know new uh, up-and-coming artists and that kind of thing, and I, I don't have necessarily the time or inclination to do that. What's interesting to me is that both SoundCloud and Pandora and before them Apple, you know, these companies that have kind of eschewed the music subscription service model in the past have now begun to embrace it. So Apple obviously with Apple Music, Pandora by acquiring the audio assets and building something around that and now SoundCloud with SoundCloud Go, you know, all these companies getting into the sort of traditional music streaming business having initially tried something different and you know, together with these RIAA stats that came out recently, um, which I wrote up for Variety, I think last week, um, you know, they basically, those stats demonstrate that paid streaming, even though it has far fewer users, generates far more revenue than uh, ad-supported streaming. And, and I noticed and other people wrote up the fact that vinyl actually was a bigger business for the U.S. music industry than ad-supported streaming last year. Um, that's how small it is. Um, and you know these uh, paid streaming services generate you know roughly 100 to 110 dollars a year per subscriber or per user. Uh, Ad-supported streaming services generate less than sort of four dollars per user per year. Um, and so you know all the money essentially is in paid streaming, and and that's why you see a lot of these companies moving in that direction, and why I think you'll see a lot of labels push in that direction too. Um, the title news to me was just an illustration of the fact that. There are there are niches within this market that can still be served, and so the fact that almost half of title subscribers are on that higher tiered service uh, suggests that that's that's at least part of who they're capturing. And I'm betting a lot of the rest is people that signed up for specific exclusives, and notably the the Kanye West uh, album recently. Uh, let's move on to the Af- Apple FBI story. And, and again, this is a story we've covered in depth before, so we won't spend a lot of time on this. But the news last week was that the FBI had said they thought they might have found another way into the device. And uh, this week it was confirmed that they had indeed found another way into that phone. And uh, and the court case officially ended. And so the good news here for Apple, of course, is that that legal case is now over. Um, and the troubling precedent that they were worried about has not been set. It doesn't mean that there aren't other cases still ongoing. Um, it also means that the Apple Apple's sort of security story about these devices being very, very secure has been potentially undermined by the fact that, that the FBI, with help from a third party, most likely an Israeli company called Celebrite, um, found a way into the device. Uh, what isn't clear yet is kind of how... Uh, replicable that approach is for other Apple devices. So whether other iPhones would be similarly vulnerable or whether newer devices with Touch ID and a secure enclave would be protected from this particular hack. But Aaron, what are your thoughts about kind of where this leaves everything? Well, it's unfortunately not really a resolution. I mean, it is for the San Bernardino case, but it's not for the broader issue, which is at the heart of the controversy. Um, we, We don't yet have a court ruling on whether or not the court can force Apple to write, 
you know, essentially a weaker version of their operating system for the FBI's purposes. And without a court ruling like that is still very much up in the air. Um, there is a, there's a high likelihood now, I think, that Congress will act on it um, and they won't and they will do it right now without the, you know, the, the looming consequence of a court battle going on. But the truth is there, there are going to be more court battles in the near future and it won't necessarily even be the FBI. Um, there are going to be a lot of local enforcement uh, local law enforcement agencies that are going to be trying to get Apple to do what the All Writs Act enables the FBI to have asked for to begin with, or what they were claiming to, to that it would ask for. I think I, I won't be at all surprised on the legal side of things that this will eventually escalate to the U.S. Supreme Court, and you'll get a decision on that because there are multiple venues where these cases are being brought by law enforcement against Apple, mm-hmm. and so I think we're eventually going to see a court decision on that, but I think we'll also see congressional legislation and that part. I don't know. I, I, am not confident in what the outcome there will be. If you're concerned about, you know, users being able to secure their information, even if it means securing it in a way that makes it inaccessible to government agencies, it's really hard to say because that, you know, in Congress, it can be swayed by, by so many different things. So I guess that's my takeaway is it's, it's almost too bad that the FBI found another way into the phone because it meant that uh, a tide that I think was moving in Apple's favor, you know, is now going to wash by in a way that doesn't have enough effect. And now we have to wait for the next sort of crazy set of circumstances. And hopefully that's one that will curry the public's favor for, you know, secure devices rather than get people offended by them and insist that the government can break in. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and for anybody who missed it, we we talked about the All Writs Act as it applied to a different case in New York in uh, episode 36. So if you haven't listened to that episode, well worth going back to it, Aaron. Spent some time explaining kind of how that decision in that case was reached and, and, and explaining the All Writs Act specifically and its limitations. Um, our third topic in the news roundup here is the Foxconn uh, acquisition of Sharp. It's something that's been bouncing around for a while now. Um, there was an offer on the table that was abruptly withdrawn when it turned out there were various financial issues at Sharp that needed to be resolved. And uh, Foxconn's now come back and had an offer accepted at a rather lower price. Um, so that will presumably be completed in the next few months. Um, but Foxconn's obviously a major supplier to Apple in particular. Sharp is a, is a supplier of displays. Uh, to Apple and others. And so, um, you know, this is presumably a play by Foxconn to kind of consolidate and to expand the scope of the kinds of uh, components and the work that it can do on behalf of companies like Apple uh, in an increasingly competitive market and an increasingly sort of flat smartphone market globally. Uh, there have also been some signs that Apple may be looking to diversify its uh, suppliers in terms of putting its components together and, and uh, putting together iPhones. And so, um, this all comes in that kind of context. Uh, Sharp's obviously a big name, um, less so perhaps from a direct kind of consumer perspective today than it has been in the past. Foxconn obviously now a huge company. I was just reading today that they were started in 1974 as a manufacturer of television knobs. Uh, so it's amazing how companies like this get started and then evolve very significantly from where they start to somewhere new. But Aaron, what were your thoughts on this whole story? Well, it'll be interesting to see how this shapes Foxconn going forward as a um, a, a brand name producer of goods. Because right now they don't make anything that they have their own name on. Um, they're really and, and their primary pr- purpose is assembly. 
of devices. So there are a lot of components that they don't even make. And it'll be interesting to see how Foxconn moves. I, I think they just, and, and this is a trend I think that's sort of happened throughout history. You know, a lot of these suppliers start to realize that they can be making the things themselves and cutting out the middleman. I mean, Samsung has been an example of that over the years. And it'll be interesting to see if Foxconn really does try to get into consumer electronics on their own brand. And if they do, what's their entry point? If I suspect it'll be, you know, at the low end of the market. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's crazy to think that, I mean, 20 years ago, right, if we were talking about a, a company like Foxconn buying a company like Sharp, you know, which at the time was a highly respected and really successful consumer electronics brand, but it just shows you how quickly fortunes change in in this space. Right, absolutely. It's uh, I mean, you know, there's obviously a history here too in terms of you know component vendors eventually becoming uh, actual product vendors in their own rights. Um, and uh, you know, in, from the laptop market a few years back, you had some players that obviously went in that direction and seeing that potentially play out here again. Well, that concludes our news roundup. Uh, we'll now move into our question of the week. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the question today is, what can Apple and Google teach other companies about corporate social responsibility? And this comes partly off the back of Apple's event last week in which they spent the first few minutes talking about a number of what could be described as corporate social responsibility initiatives from environmental impact to focusing on privacy and security on behalf of customers to um, their health and care kit and, and other initiatives. Um, Google obviously has a number of those as well, and so we're using those two companies as examples of, of what's been done well in this area. We'll also talk about some of the potential criticisms of both companies on this uh, topic. Um, by way of background, Aaron is a business school professor, and specifically one of his key areas of expertise is business ethics, and so this is a topic that he knows all about and teaches about uh, at university, and so uh, that's why we're asking him to talk about this today. So. Aaron, why don't you start by giving us a little bit of background to kind of help us understand uh, corporate, social corporate social responsibility, or CSR, as I think we'll largely refer to it, uh, as a concept and kind of the history behind that concept. Sure. So um, it's, it's best to start with sort of the old way and the older perspective, which I, I guess when I say older, shouldn't mean that it shouldn't be assumed that this is abandoned. There are a lot of people who still hold to this view, but it's but this original view is best articulated, I think, by Milton Friedman. So he, um, Nobel Prize-winning economist, uh, wrote an article in 1970 in the New York Times Magazine, and this was the title, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. And the, the core of his argument was simply that the managers of a company um, are agents of the shareholders, and their ethical responsibility is to simply increase the shareholders' value by improving the profits of the company that they're managing. Um, he essentially makes the point that once a manager is engaged in social responsibility, and, and this is a phrase in the article he repeatedly uh, encloses in quotation marks because he doubts his rigor as a subject, but he essentially says, look, if a manager is engaged in social responsibility, he's using shareholder money to do it and uh, often without the shareholder's approval. In fact, he said, quote, he is in effect imposing taxes on the one hand and deciding how the tax proceeds shall be spent on the other. 
Um, so this was and is still a, a widely held perspective. Um, the, the essence of it is that, look, companies should just make money, uh, give that money to the shareholders, and let the shareholders how, decide how to use it in, in a way that makes society better off, um, rather than making the company making a donation, for example. Um, the company ought to distribute that money to the shareholders and let the shareholders decide where and how to donate it. Um, an, an argument that actually has some compelling effect, especially when you look at corporations today engaged in philanthropy in really ineffective and, and kind of thoughtless ways. Um, one of the things I, I refer to this as checkbook CSR. And the idea is that you have a lot of companies who just they just set aside a corporate budget and they just give the money away um, kind of on a first come, first serve basis. And so the trick for getting money from some corporations is to ask for a donation at the time of year when their budget turns over. Right. Uh, yeah. Which isn't, isn't very sophisticated or strategic mm-hmm. and, uh, and doesn't always have the intended effect. And, and there have been other versions of this where companies have tried to use corporate social responsibility, like philanthropy, to maybe burnish their brand. The Pepsi Challenge from, what, gosh, how long has it been now? Six or seven years ago. Uh, was a good example of that done poorly. Um, and the idea was you'd essentially use social media to vote up, give you know to have your friends give a lot of votes to their favorite charities, and then they would fund, and then Pepsi would fund the winners. Um, well, there was a big expose article written that that sh- that turned that revealed that there was a some guy in I think the Philippines who was reaching out to nonprofits because he had figured out a way to gain the system, and he was essentially helping nonprofits win this money uh, dishonestly uh, in exchange for a cut of, wow. of the grants. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's a lot of bad corporate philanthropy, and that's part of the reason Milton Friedman's perspective on this is still compelling today. But the truth is, since 1970 and, and over time, over the, over the past four decades, companies have faced increasing pressure to be more generous in their connections with communities. Um, uh, and in, in, 19, in the 1980s, you uh, saw the rise of what's called stakeholder theory, which is the idea that companies should be serving not just shareholders, but all stakeholders, essentially anybody with, a, with an important uh, connection with, or involvement with the business. Uh, that would include, for example, employees or suppliers uh, or the community where the corporations operate. Um, the truth is, the idea of corporate philanthropy um, has has not been the necessarily the best approach, uh, and I think a lot of people are actually surprised by how small corporate philanthropy still is today. Um, in fact, uh, today, uh, when you look at the total of charitable giving, which is over three hundred sixty billion dollars a year in the United States, corporation corporate philanthropy, meaning the money that corporations give away, only accounts for five percent of that, or about eighteen billion. So, corporations as a share of the total um, charitable giving in the United States are, are not all that large. Um, it, what, what The big change that started happening was in the late 90s and early 2000s, you started to see the rise of what's called social entrepreneurship, which uh, is, is basically the idea of using business tools and resources to address social uh, problems. Um, in fact, interestingly enough, a lot of social entrepreneurship was driven by money coming out of the dot-com billionaires from the early 2000s, um, specifically Omidyar and Skoll. Um, and they, with a lot of their funding, were able to drive this rise of social entrepreneurship as, as an area of interest. 
Um, and now the truth is most on college campuses across the country, you see really intense efforts because students are, are really enamored by this. They love the idea of being able to go into business, but in a way that improves the world and not just their bank accounts. And this, the, this hasn't exactly culminated because this is a trend that's accelerating. But I think one of the most recent things you've seen to kind of illustrate this shift from corporations just being about profits to being about social impact is the rise of what are called B corporations or benefit corporations, which are legal entities structured in such a way that the board of directors is allowed to consider uh, non uh, to consider social impact and not just profit motive when they make decisions as a board. And this gives them sort of legal protection for, for example, choosing to do something that benefits the environment instead of benefiting the shareholders. So so that's kind of the, the summary to where we are now. And so what we have today is this increasing hybridization of corporate America where companies are becoming more and more like a blend of traditional corporations and now what I guess we historically have seen nonprofits do. Right. And so that's where this kind of whole kind of corporate social responsibility thing comes in where these companies are trying to kind of burnish that side of their credentials and and use that in some extent to kind of offset criticisms perhaps that they may be solely sort of profit seeking um so let's talk about some specific cases where apple and google are engaging in this kind of activity what are what are they doing and, and what's what's good about what they're doing specifically so um, there are kind of three categories for us to discuss in that regard. The first is just in philanthropy or giving. Um, the second is environment. And then the last is uh, a category that I'm calling core competencies because I want to introduce a concept that I think is really important to understanding how companies can best engage in CSR. So going to the, to the philanthropy part of things, um, so Steve Jobs was notoriously not philanthropic. After he left Apple in the 80s, he started his own foundation and gave it up, I think, within a year. He just very quickly realized it wasn't something he was going to be good at, um, which I think shows actually a lot of intellectual humility on his part, which probably surprises some people about him. But um, when he came back to Apple and took over at Apple, uh, and during the years that he ran Apple, there were a lot of people who were disappointed that Apple was not more engaged philanthropically. Tim Cook has changed that. Um, in fact, one of the first things that Tim Cook did when he took over as CEO was he instituted a, a, an employee giving program. Now, this is personally one of my favorite forms of corporate philanthropy. And the reason I love it is because small grants um, have really important impacts in communities. But the problem with small grant making is if you're a foundation that gives grants, small grants are super time consuming and require a lot of staff and um, can be something of an administrative headache. And what's cool about employee giving is you distribute the grant making decision power out to your employees who by their own account, see problems in the communities. And then and then the idea is, is, is simply power their personal philanthropy. And so the way it works at Apple is Apple matches one-to-one, dollar-for-dollar, up to $10,000 a year in charitable giving. Um, that is now totaled over – I think that averages, based on some things I read, it probably averages – somewhere between 10 to $20 million a year that Apple's giving out through its corporate giving program, its employee match giving program. 
And in addition to that, Apple encourages volunteering very generously, much more than most companies. And what they do is for every hour that you volunteer with the nonprofit, Apple will make a $25 donation to that nonprofit organization. Um, and that's, like I said, one of the most generous volunteering benefits I've seen. Um, Google also has a pretty generous employee giving program. They match one-to-one up to $6,000. And then they'll match an additional 6000 for any giving that goes to disaster or international relief organizations. Um, they also incentivize uh, volunteering, and they'll contribute $50 for every five hours volunteered to a nonprofit. This is a really simple form of corporate social responsibility that I wish most companies would engage in. And it's interesting to think about the incentives as to why this doesn't happen. The primary one is that if the company writes a big check rather than distributing a bunch of little donations through its employees, then the corporate executives are the ones who sort of get all the influence and power that comes with those large donations. And so the CEO of a company can have the photo op with a big check, can make sure that the money goes to the nonprofit being run by a friend of his and so forth. And when you distribute the grant-making power to the employees, those opportunities go away. But the effectiveness of employee giving is far greater than than most corporate philanthropy. And so it's kind of a shame that this is such an easy... Uh, relatively easy uh, CSR strategy to adopt, um, and a lot of companies don't do it. And so I'm really happy to see that Apple and Google are, are, are setting strong examples. Now, that's not the, the end of corporate philanthropy, for Google anyway. Apple doesn't have a corporate foundation, which actually is unexpected because a lot of companies their size, almost pretty much every company their size has a corporate foundation. Google, on the other hand, does have a foundation, which is pretty large. It has about $90 million in assets. Last year they gave, or for, sorry, 2014, which is where we have the most recent financial report, they gave away $29 million in grants. Google's grant making through Google.org is primarily toward what they consider innovative organizations. You can really see Google culture reflected in their grant making. And a lot of cool organizations have gotten um, uh, interesting grants. Um, the largest grants tend to be about $2.5 million. Um, the smallest ones, you know, maybe $100,000. Uh, but uh, Google is active in its own philanthropy, not just through its employees. Yeah, that's neat. I mean, the the other interesting thing about the matching and that kind of thing is that it, it somewhat neutralizes that criticism of Milton Friedman's from the beginning, right, in that it's no longer sort of arbitrary on the basis of what some executive decides, but it's at least aligned with employees. That may not be the same thing as aligned with the interests of shareholders, but at least it's more kind of distributed decision-making in that sense. Right, and I think in that sense it's much more analogous to a free market, right, because you're getting the benefit of the invisible hand by having, right. like you said, distributed decision-making. So I think there's a lot of – that's why I'm saying this is, this is kind of one of the no-brainer CSR strategies mm-hmm. that I wish more companies would adopt. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so that's that's giving and corporate philanthropy. You said the second major area that you wanted to talk about was the environment, and obviously that was a theme at Apple's event last week in particular. Right, and this is, I think, what – it was Apple's announcements last week that uh, that prompted the thought of this topic of doing one on CSR because Apple's announcements in environment was were very impressive. I think one of the things that was most impressive to me was the amount that they rely on renewable energy – uh, for their um, for all of their activities, including data centers, manufacturing, and so forth. 
essentially 100% of their U.S. operations are now run on renewable energy, like they announced last week. That is a phenomenal accomplishment. Uh, to, and 87% of their global operations run on renewable energy, and that really is amazing. Now, there are going to be suppliers that aren't going to be part of that uh, part of that equation. Um, but uh, even without the suppliers baked into the way that works, it's still really impressive because if you compare to Google, uh, Google right now, according to Google the Google Green website, uh, Google right now uh, only has about 37% of their uh, activities funded or, or sort of powered by green energy, which which really is quite a bit less than Apple. Now, um, it's hard to know, like, it, it, obviously, like, server farms are really, de- are really energy intensive, and I don't know how to compare the scale of Google's um, you know, server facilities versus Apple's. But uh, I think the other thing that's actually helped Apple in this regard is they're kind of coming a little bit late to building these massive, you know, server farms. And mm-hmm. and very famously, like, for example, in North Carolina, made solar power part of their plan from the beginning. Uh, right. It's easier to implement a strategy like that now than it was 10 years ago mm-hmm. and uh, much harder to retrofit renewable energy onto you know, a facility. So uh, versus building it from scratch. And so um, that said, it is really impressive. Uh, I think this is an important point for companies to consider. And and the CSR perspective on this, where I think Apple and Google are making a compelling case, is that environmental responsibility has, has, in fact, it was something of a whipping boy for Milton Friedman back in 1970. He talked specifically about environmental responsibilities being an example of corporate excess when it came to social responsibility. Essentially, his argument was that environmental standards should be set by the government and then companies should be able to operate within those rules. Um, but that's not the approach that, that Google and Apple are taking. They see the environmental impact of their business as being uniquely within their power and control. And this makes a really important principle sort of supporting corporate social responsibility crystal clear. Milton Friedman's argument was that the money that would be spent on environmental uh, friendliness should be instead distributed to shareholders so that they can act collectively to make happen what they want to happen. But that's a that's an actually an inefficiency in this case because the organizations that are the, the, the sort of the vehicle that's best suited for addressing environmental impact is the company itself, not the shareholders collectively trying to compensate for the damage that the company is doing. The company should be the one acting in order to have the best environmental outcome. And so if we want positive environmental outcomes, the sort of volunteer, voluntary environmental initiatives that Google and Apple are undertaking, the, this is where we have the most efficient decision-making taking place because companies are uniquely positioned. It's that old piece of advice that Uncle Ben gave to Spider-Man, right? With great power comes great responsibility. And, uh, and, uh, and, Google and Apple are uniquely positioned to have an impact this way. Um, if we were to try to force them through legislation, if we were to try to fund environmental nonprofits to sort of clean up the mess that Google and Apple would otherwise be making, none of that would work as well as simply having the companies themselves operate in a way that is efficient. Now, Google and Apple also happen to have the cash to do this. And they have the financial resources they need to be more environmentally responsible. 
And so it's harder to export this piece of advice versus, say, the employee giving program because um, the, the truth is, you know, Apple has so much cash on hand for them to pursue environmental responsibility along with the, the capital return program they already have in place for shareholders. They, they're doing all of that plus making buckets of money. And so they're kind of a unique example that way. But it is great to see that they're taking this so, so seriously. Yeah, absolutely. So the third area that you talked about, you, you said you were going to call it core competencies and talked about introducing that as an important concept generally as well. So why don't you talk through what you mean by that? Yeah, so the core competency theory, uh, for those that aren't familiar with it, was a theory um, created in 1990 by a couple of academics, one of whom was a guy named C.K. Prahalad, who was a Michigan business professor who, interestingly enough, went on to have a really important impact in in uh, social entrepreneurship as well. But core competency theory essentially says that your company is good at something um, and that something isn't necessarily the product itself. And the classic example they give is Honda. Honda's core competency isn't cars or motorcycles or lawnmowers. Honda's core competency is engines. And then it gets, it's, so Honda's really good at making engines and then it figures out different ways to leverage that into products. Um, that theory essentially uh, over the past decade or so has been brought into corporate social responsibility and the perspective there. And again, this plays on the idea of with great power comes great responsibility. The idea is that if companies want to have a social impact, they should do it through what they're already good at. Meaning if a company is good at something, they should figure out how to use the thing that they're good at to have an to, to have a, a social benefit in the world. Um, you know, for example, one of the best responders to Hurricane Katrina was Walmart because Walmart's core competency was getting stuff to places cheaply, right? I mean, like they have such a massive and impressive supply chain. That right. was why Walmart was one of the best companies to respond to Hurricane Katrina, which they did and and did very well. And and, and so, the, so the idea is we should look at Apple and Google and sort of consider, okay, what are their core competencies? What are they really, really good at? that they could use and leverage in a way that would make the world a better place. And so let's look at Apple. So Apple has a phone in all these people's pockets all over the world, mostly, you know, in Western countries. But but this phone, uh, you know, has a capacity to, to, I mean, because it's such a personal device all the time. And, and if, you know, as the watch market grows, we're going to see that happen as well. It makes sense that health is a connection here. And so when Apple announced CareKit last week and gave us updates on ResearchKit and how useful it's been in, in advancing medical research, this is an example of Apple taking this core competency, which is, hey, they have this resource, right? They have this phone that's in a lot of people's pockets all over the world. Why not use this for, for, for both for research and also to improve medical care? Um, that's an example of leveraging their core competency. Now, you know, a cynic might argue that the reason Apple is doing this is because they're trying to enhance their product. But I would respond by saying, why can't it be both, right? I mean, why can't this be both making the world a better place and improving their product? Um, an area where uh, you maybe see a division of core competency and, and product improvement is the fact that Tim Cook is, you know, probably is definitely the most famous openly gay CEO uh, in the world. And he has been a staunch advocate of civil rights around the world and domestically in the U.S., and, and, and he's used that pulpit. And so this is an example of another core ability, right? Because Tim Cook comes to his role with a very unique perspective 
and and that perspective empowers him to be a voice and he's at times even used uh, apple as a source of leverage to encourage um a greater um access to civil rights for for everybody um and then finally i think one of the ways that apple has really pushed their their core abilities to 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 make dramatic improvements in the social side of things is in their supplier responsibility push um, in fact, they just came out with their supplier responsibility report today, um, and I think it's safe to say that as one of the biggest uh, manufacturing companies in the world, right, as one of the biggest product companies in the world, Apple has uh, also really pushed the improvement of conditions for the people building these products in the developing world. Um, and, uh, I mean, for example, this is not a widely known thing, but it's in their supplier responsibility report that if they find an instance of a child working in any of their production, any of their partner's production facilities, as a part of the agreement, that supplier will not only, you know, not have that child work there anymore, but is responsible to pay for that child's education. <laughs> so, wow. yeah. so if you catch, so if they catch a kid working and they did, they caught one supplier in Indonesia, I think it was, had three, they caught three instances of children working there. Well, this supplier now has to pay for these children's education if they're planning to continue their relationship with Apple. Right. Wow. And so this is, again, the sort of thing that Apple is uniquely positioned to champion, right? I mean, if we had an external nonprofit organization who was out there trying to make the same outcomes, they would not be nearly as powerful or effective as Apple. So those are the core competencies that Apple's leveraging. Google, on the other hand, I think, I think one of the things that I really like best about Google's approach is with their Jigsaw initiative, which they just spun out as under the Alphabet umbrella. And so... And I've been using Google the whole time, but I should have been talking about this in terms of Alphabet. But um, but Alphabet, uh, the, but this Jigsaw initiative is uh, essentially using Google's ability to understand massive amounts of data and find patterns in the data uh, to, to, to make important things happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. And so, for example, one of the things they have is this thing called the investigative dashboard. And what it does is it gives journalists tools to research data across borders, essentially allowing them to find to follow the money and to follow the people through things like shell companies, uh, uh, international corporations, and, and uh, even identify international money laundering. Um, they uh, they they are able to visualize digital attacks um, across the world, so you can see, uh, especially attacks against the websites of newspapers. Um, and, uh, and they're doing a lot to protect free press. Um, and I think that's really cool. So, so that's an example of Google using data to, oh, and they also, um, are a fantastic resource for understanding epidemiology and the spread of disease because, uh, they share information with researchers who can track how diseases spread based on people's Google searches. So that's one example for Google with core competency. Another really cool one is with their moonshots. And so this is deeply ingrained into Google's culture, this moonshot idea. And Google very, uh, you know, years, a couple of years ago announced their Project Loon um, uh, initiative, which is essentially the idea of floating gigantic balloons up in the stratosphere higher than airplanes that uh, essentially provide internet access to places where they can't get access. And so uh, they've been piloting this in, a, in an area of New Zealand um, and, uh, and also in uh, northeast Brazil. 
and they've been learning a lot through these pilots, but the idea is to eventually launch a fleet of these balloons in the stratosphere, providing internet access to places that otherwise couldn't get them. And that's classic Google moonshot kind of thinking. Right. Great. And then, yeah, I've got sidewalk labs and various other things like that as well that are also aimed at achieving certain objectives in, in other areas of society, whether it's in smart cities or whatever. And a lot of it's with the business motive. I mean, it's not sort of purely philanthropic, but that's kind of your point, I think, is kind of using their skill sets to achieve some of these objectives. Um, one of the things that I saw people saying during the Apple event last week was, you know, it's all very well for Apple to talk about this stuff, but, you know, research kit and care kits really only available to people who have access to iOS devices. And, you know, Apple in general serves only a certain segment of the populations, typically more Western, certainly more wealthy than the average population. Google's vision is perhaps more expansive. And, and this morning at Microsoft's Build keynote, there was sort of subtle references that we build technology for everyone. So, you know, one criticism of Apple here might be that for all that they do, a lot of it affects only sort of certain segments of the population, whereas perhaps other companies' initiatives are broader than that. Is that a valid criticism? And are there other sort of criticisms of these companies that you think are fair as regards these sort of CSR initiatives? Well, I definitely think the criticism of Apple uh, kind of ignoring the developing world is fair. And, and if you look at it, that's reflective of their market strategy, not just of their of their CSR. I mean, it, right. I think it makes sense that you see it this way. Now, that's not to ignore what they're doing. I, I mean, there's there's kind of a perspective that if you're not helping the worse off, then you shouldn't be helping at all. And I'm not sure I subscribe to that idea. I mean, what Apple's been able to to assist with in terms of research, with research kit, for example, and medical research, uh, it's true that most of the people who will benefit from that probably live in developed countries, but um, that doesn't mean that those people don't need improved health outcomes in really dramatic ways. And so it, it, it's a fair criticism of Apple. I, I also think that there is an appropriate place for direct corporate philanthropy in a way that's strategic, um, sort of like how Google is doing with Google.org funding, what they think are really innovative programs. Um, and so, a, uh, you know, I, I think Apple, I, I doubt Apple will ever have, will any time in the fu near future have a corporate foundation. But um uh, and it may just be that that sort of attitude that, you know, like Steve Jobs had, that we can't be good at this, so we're not going to do it, um, may be what's prevailing there. Um, but, you know, it, that so I think that's a fair criticism of Apple, um, that they are sort of insensitive to the needs of the developing world, and that's a lot of people. It's about half the world's population um, sure. that yeah. live in what we would consider poverty, like by, by global standards. Um I think Google, you know, if I have a criticism of the way Google does things, I think it's actually the thing I was just praising a moment ago, which is the moonshot mentality. Um, Google is very willing to just sort of try things. And then if it's not working out, just cut bait and move on. And uh, th there's there's an extent to which innovation comes, uh, essentially just evokes a cost more than anything else. In fact, there's uh, some research I've done with a couple uh, other professors here at BYU, you know, our preliminary results indicate that when it comes to corporate social responsibility, companies only think in terms of upside, meaning they don't think to themselves, oh, is what we're doing, does is, is this thing that we're doing have the potential to make the world worse? Like nobody, the, the truth is managers don't tend to think that way is what our research has indicated in these early stages, that that when, when, you, when you're thinking, I want to help, you automatically assume that your that your your help will at worst be benign, 
meaning it won't right. make things better off. And, and the truth is that's not the case. And I, and I worry that the moonshot mentality may lead in some circumstances to make things worse off. Um, you know, I was praising Project Loon a, a moment ago, but, but the devil will be in the details because Google will have the potential to spoil markets um, in the developing world by providing, you know, a free service that could actually ruin uh, uh, potential business opportunities for others. And so, so there's... Uh, so the the moonshot mentality, I think, would be actually part of my criticism of Google because it indicates that they're not always thoughtful about what the downsides might be. I think they just are naturally optimistic people there. <laughs> and, you know, anytime they try something out, they'll assume that failure will probably mean nothing happens. But the truth right. is that failure could mean the world is worse off because of the effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something that we... I feel like that's something that we've talked about before. I'm trying to remember the context in which we talked about it before. I think it was probably the Zuckerberg-Chan initiative when we talked about that a few episodes back, but that sometimes you can actually be disruptive in a negative way with, with philanthropic giving and intervention in markets and so on. Well, I think we'll wrap that conversation up there. Thank you, Aaron. That was a really great review of um, this topic, which is a fairly sort of complicated one and one that we haven't really addressed in, in this depth before. Um, let's move on to our final topic, which is Microsoft's Build uh, developer event that's happening this week. Um, we're recording this Wednesday afternoon, so so far all we have to discuss is the Wednesday morning keynote. There will be another keynote Thursday morning in which they'll talk about Azure and other aspects of Microsoft's developer business. But uh, we're going to focus on the Wednesday keynote, which talked about Windows 10, uh, talked about HoloLens, and then spent quite a bit of time towards the end talking about this new vision that Microsoft has for conversations as a platform and the role of bots and these uh, automated artificial intelligence agents usually accessed through messaging interfaces. Um, Aaron, you've kind of read about it a bit this morning. What kind of stood out to you from what you've read about what was announced this morning? Um, bots are an exciting uh, concept for Microsoft to be pushing. Um, I, I, I think, um, you know, the, when, it, when people think about robots and automation, I think they tend to think of physical robots doing the right. things, you know, like, like, like uh, self-driving cars, that sort of a thing. But, but the truth is there's a lot in the services industry, too, that can be managed by bots once we, uh, once we figure out how to, you know, get them working in ways that feel more natural and can be more accurate. And I think it's really cool that Microsoft is pushing this. That said, I have a hard time imagining this giving Microsoft all that much of a market advantage, uh, largely because if you know if I'm a if I'm a third party, let's say I'm a hotel and I'm building a bot to interface with Cortana, I'm not going to do it. To, I'm not going to build in a way that interfaces only with Cortana. Um, and it feels like they're sort of pushing, like Microsoft is pushing a trend that would. Uh, actually give additional firepower to, I think, the more successful companies in this space, um, uh, like Apple with Siri or, or um, Google with uh, Now and, and increasingly Amazon with Alexa. And so I, I'm excited about the prospect of bots being able to do more of this work, but uh, I have a hard time Im- imagining Microsoft being the one to sort of capture, you know, to, to, to ride in front on the wave of this in a way that makes them better off than their competitors. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this is, I feel like Microsoft and Facebook have something in common here, which is that both of them kind of missed out on 
mobile operating systems as a major opportunity. And two companies, Google and Apple, have ended up dominating that space. And so Facebook and Microsoft both have to find ways around that problem. And, and Microsoft has another problem, which is to the extent that it does have platforms that people use, uh, it's missing a lot of the apps that people want. And, and that detracts from those experiences. And so for Microsoft, I think this emphasis on bots within messaging platforms is a way to try to overcome that, kind of borrows from the Asian messaging platforms and the concept that these become almost like quasi-operating systems. And so you can gain a measure of the same sort of control and uh, opportunity by uh, having that sort of platform as you can by having an operating system in some circumstances. And then bots is a response to the weakness on the app side. You know, if, to the extent that companies can use uh, bots within messaging platforms as opposed to apps to get things done. You know, Microsoft kind of starts from square one along with everybody else in that space and has an opportunity to be a more significant player. So I think that's why they're doing this. And I, it's something interestingly that I've talked about them in some of the strategy work that I've done for them. Um, the downside has always been, well, what messaging platform do you have? You know, is it Skype? Um, you know, Skype, I think to most people, still connotes voice and video calling, not necessarily chat or messaging, even though that's obviously a component of it. Um, I kind of mentioned that briefly on Twitter today, and the, the, the pu only pushback I really got on it was, well, I use Skype for chat. And when I pushed back even further, it was within the business environment. And so there are people who use Skype as their kind of de facto IM client within the business. Uh, and so it does have applicability there. But again, that then makes you wonder how transferable is that to the consumer world? People aren't generally using Skype for IM or chat or messaging. In the consumer world, it's kind of remained sort of substandard compared to other messaging platforms out there. Um, and so, you know, why would somebody develop for Skype specifically if uh, other messaging platforms out there have far more appeal, far more users, far more active users than Skype does? And so there are a lot of sort of downsides, even though the technology that Microsoft demonstrated today was really first class, really impressive, and they're getting in uh, this trend right, right from the get-go. I think... Um, and having a conversation with somebody this afternoon, um, shortly before we started recording, it seems that what Microsoft's vision here is, is that Skype is just one implementation of this. And this is really about giving developers the tools to build these bots that then could appear in many other settings as well. I, I don't think that means that you're going to be able to build a bot using Microsoft tools that will show up in Facebook Messenger necessarily. I'm not sure that they'll be open enough to allow that. but. There may be other platforms that are more open. And over time, we may see more sort of standardization around how these bots work that will allow companies to build them for multiple platforms at once. But to me, this whole bot thing and the conversations of the platform thing was by far the most interesting part of the keynote, partly because it was such a surprise, but partly because everything else felt very incremental and in some cases actually felt like a direct repeat of last year's keynote, just having moved slightly further forward at these various initiatives. Well, and, you know, I think the long trend, and this is obviously a pretty, a pretty I, don't, I don't want to call it a basis speculation, but this is kind of what I envision in my head for Microsoft 20 years into the future, is, is something much more like IBM's approach, where um, they are helping others build really cool things rather than necessarily building them themselves. I, I think that is, uh, that's a direction I can see the company going. And this kind of thinking about bots would reflect them being really good at that. I mean, if the idea was, hey, let us help you build these bots that can interface with whatever technology you're using and be a better way to connect with your customers, a better way to connect with your employees. Like, I, I mean, this is the kind of thinking that a company that helps others build the right technology um, 
that that's where that would be really powerful and amazing. And right. and so I wonder, and Google's always been a pretty, or sorry, Microsoft has always been a pretty visionary company in a lot of those kinds of areas. I think the problem is like you were sort of hinting at earlier is that they, they throw out these visions and then they never quite get all the way there. And so we're hearing about the same thing a year later. Right. And that, my, my other concern there is if their vision is really to help people do this on other platforms and why lead with Skype and Cortana, you know, I mean, those are the platforms they own. Perhaps they did this purely because that way they could keep it within the company and keep the, the news from leaking. But it would have been that much more powerful to say we've done this and it works within Facebook Messenger or it works within WhatsApp or it works within WeChat or any other of the major messaging platforms out there. I think by focusing on their own products in the form of Skype and Cortana, they diluted that message. And this continues to be a challenge for Microsoft. You know, their vision is increasingly about, we give you the best tools to develop anywhere. And yet, in many of the demos and other stuff they do, that it's clear that they want to own a lot of this stuff from a consumer-facing perspective as well. And I think at some point, they have to resolve that conflict. And, you know, today was yet another example of how, how they still are conflicted about a lot of that stuff. Um, this is something, by the way, that I've, I've written about for Tech Pinions for tomorrow. So by the time most of you hear this episode, that will be up on Tech Pinions. Um, and it's just commentary on this whole strategy from Microsoft. So it'll be published on Thursday, um, 31st of March. Uh, any other comments about build news from today? Um, no, I, I think it's kind of interesting. The Windows Inc. draw anywhere or draw everywhere kind of, uh, you know, the approach that they're taking to improve and broaden the way you can use a stylus. Um, it really feels like a hearkening back to the way the old Windows tablets used to be from, you know, over a decade ago where you could almost draw on anything but essentially a more modern version of that. So it's interesting seeing that work its way back in. I, I think uh, I, I think now that tablets are a, a mature market, I think the idea of being able to draw on them in useful ways and, you know, kind of anywhere within the OS is is a trend you're going to see, and it looks like they're at the front end of that. And it's and it makes sense that they're doing that in a product category where they have a pretty great entry with uh, their Surface tablets. Right. Yeah. Now I'm I'm curious to see how and if Apple embraces that vision too, because there's a subtle difference with Apple. The pencil works within specific apps, and it's mostly about a way to get ink onto a surface. Um, no pun intended. Um, whereas with Microsoft, the vision that they're articulating today is more about, it's almost a layer on top of apps and, uh, there's a lot more interpretation of the ink. Um, so as an example in a demo on stage today where I was drawing on a map and then, and then the line that's drawn on the map becomes part of the map. And then as you orient the map differently, it moves in an intelligent way, uh, with that. And so, uh, and there was, you know, writing in a sticky note application where it interprets the handwriting and, and makes it clickable because what you wrote was the word tomorrow and it understands that tomorrow has a specific meaning. You know, Apple's apps have not done much, you know, since the launch of the iPad Pro in the fall by way of actually interpreting the ink that you put down. It's largely just another input method. And so um, I'm curious to see the extent to which that evolves at WWDC this year or future events where new iPads are introduced, whether that technology moves forward in this way or, or whether we end up seeing sort of a, a bifurcation in the vision for what a pen and a stylus is really about on these devices. All right, well, let's wrap up that topic there, we'll, and then we'll finish our episode with our weekly pick. We haven't done this for a couple of weeks because uh, we focused on the Apple event in the last couple of weeks and dispensed with some of our usual format. But uh, it's my turn to do this this week, and I'm going to recommend a television show that my wife and I have been enjoying lately. It's a show called Madam Secretary. Uh, it's about a female uh, Secretary of State in the United States 
Uh, it's in its second season at the moment. It's on the CBS network in the US. The first season is available on Netflix, so you can watch it there. Uh, unfortunately, CBS doesn't participate very actively in Hulu uh, or any of these other services, and so the only way to watch it is either pay for it by episode or watch it through CBS uh, apps, which then show you advertising. So it's not ideal um, if you're used to just streaming stuff ad-free. But um, what we've loved about it is it's if you were a fan of The West Wing, it, it has many of the same appeals of that. It's not as... Uh, ideological as the West Wing, so it doesn't kind of come at the subject matter from a particular political point of view, which may be a drawback or a benefit depending on your political leanings. Uh, but it has a lot of the same interest in, in, and, uh, in terms of seeing inside the political process. Um, it's got some really fun storylines. One of the things we like best about it, though, is it's one of the best depictions of a functional family on TV recently as well. So many of the depictions on, of families on TV are so dysfunctional and make so much of that that there's at the heart of this show that the secretary of state and her husband have a great relationship they have three kids who are three-dimensional fleshed out characters and who have challenges and so on and yet um, the family seems to work together through these various challenges and so that's an enjoyable part of it too so the show is madam secretary as i say the current season's on cbs uh, the first season's available on netflix to stream and uh, we'll put links and so on on the show notes uh, on the website at podcast.beyonddevices. So thanks for joining us again. This episode's a little longer than we usually go, but hopefully you found it useful. And uh, we welcome your feedback as always and reviews on iTunes especially. And we'll be with you again next week. Thanks. <laughs>